0: The story is told of two ducks and a frog who lived happily together in a farm pond. The best of friends, they'd amuse themselves and play together in their little water hole. But when the hot summer days came along, the pond began to dry up. And soon it was evident that they would have to move. This was no problem for the ducks who could easily fly to another pond. But the frog was stuck. So it was decided that they would put a stick in the bill of each duck that the frog could hang on to with his mouth as they flew to another pond. The plan worked wonderfully, so well, in fact, that as they were flying along, a farmer looked up and in admiration. He said, well, isn't that a clever idea? Who thought of that? To which the frog said, I did. Okay, now. Pride came before the literal fall for that frog. You know, the Bible speaks against pride from beginning to end. And we all know what pride is because we all struggle with it. And so did the people of Edom. And we read of their judgment in the book of Obadiah. And if you kept your place in Amos, just turn right a couple of pages and you should be in Obadiah. Uh, Being a a short book, its message is often overlooked in the shadow of the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Obadiah is never quoted in the New Testament, and it's often forgotten. Forgetting, there's a good word, forgotten. Uh, by Christians. Last week, we looked at the background of the book, how Esau and Jacob, brothers, became the nations of Edom and Israel. And we traced their antagonism that existed between them from the time that they were in the womb and for centuries that followed. And in Obadiah, the first nine verses focus on Edom's pride. And according to Obadiah, the pride of Eve, uh, the pride of Edom deceived them into trusting in things other than God himself. And the accusation he brings is that the people of Edom had sinned in their pride. How do we know that's true? I mean, we can't really see the heart. We can't see the attitude of pride. Well, we can see it in the actions of it puts forth. And that's what we see here in verses 10 through 14. Edom's pride is seen in the way that they treated their brother nation, Israel. And pride often leads to an unjustified sense of of self-superiority. And when we feel this way about ourselves, we look down on others and we find ourselves mistreating them just as the Edomites did. So Edom's mistreatment of the people of Jerusalem was proof of their pride and the reason for God's judgment on them. Let's read once again, if we will, verses 1 through 14 this morning of the book of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom, and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Timan, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you, do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster, and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives, and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that uh, even obscure books like Obadiah are your words to us, and they have meaning to us today. So, Father, we pray that as we look at this, uh, we would hear from you. And hear what you want us to hear. And, Father, that you might be honored and glorified in the way that we react and respond to your word this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You know, some of you still read the newspaper, right? Newspapers still do exist. Well, John Wesley is said to have remarked that he read the newspaper to see how God was governing his world. And that's a biblical way of looking at events, world events in the news. God rules over kingdoms and nations, does he not? I mean, we read in the book of Daniel, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He, God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God rules over the nations and over the kingdoms. This does not mean that God is to blame for the foolish or wicked decisions of de- and deeds of, of uh, nations or governments or people, no. But it does mean he is on his throne and he's working out his perfect will in ways we often don't understand. But, but knowing that God reigns over all things should encourage each of us as we look at world events, as we grieve over the evil people and evil nations that, that populate this world. We know that God has a purpose and a reason, and he's at work. And so the sovereignty of God is not an excuse for us to be indifferent to the evil in the world, nor is it an encouragement to us to do nothing, saying, uh, God's got it under control, I'll just do whatever I please. No. Yes, God's ways are hidden, they're mysterious, and we sometimes wonder why he permits certain things to happen. But we still must always pray, your will be done. And be available to obey him, however he calls us. And so as we come to Obadiah, we we realize that most likely uh, the nation of of Judah, uh, the city of Jerusalem, is being attacked by Babylon. They're being punished for, for their misdeeds. And Edom is watching this happen. Okay, so, so we see the charge against them in verses one and two, where it says the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, uh, an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, arise and let us go against her, Edom, for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, you are greatly despised. That's what God says. Thus says the Lord God, it is a common phrase throughout the prophets. It's a claim that the message did not originate in the prophet's own imagination, no, but in the very mind of God himself. And God is addressed here as Adonai Yahweh. And Adonai meaning master, lord, owner. And in this context, it emphasizes God's sovereign ownership of the world and all of history. Whereas the word Yahweh speaks of his eternal existence, his presence, his relationship, covenant relationship with Israel. And oftentimes in our scriptures, Yahweh is translated Lord. And so English translations of this would usually be, thus says the Lord, Lord, Adonai, Lord. But here, Lord God. Obadiah receives a news bulletin from the Lord God. And this news bulletin is telling him that God is bringing nations against the nation of Edom to judge them. And in verse three, we're told that Edom's arrogance, their pride is the main vice that has led them astray. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. Ever been deceived by your own pride, your own arrogance? You know, oftentimes our pride makes us think things about ourselves, and think things about other people that are not true, right? And and the Edomites were not the last people to be deceived by their pride. And and it's interesting, the the word for arrogance here in verse 3 comes from a verb meaning to boil up. And and it's the picture of pride as water that is boiling under pressure. Likewise, the proud person is like that bubble, Coming up, that thrusts itself out of the water and yet is what? Hollow inside. It's the same word that occurs three times in the account of Esau, the father of the Edomites, when he squandered his birthright and sold it for a bowl of porridge. So, I guess, what is arrogance? What is pride? And we could probably all define it in, in somewhat similar ways, but I like this definition it's the attitude of life that declares its ability to live without God. That is pride. And that's what the Edomites were doing. It's very possible for us as Christians to fall into this very same sin of pride, to live as if there is no God. I mean, all you have to do is, you know, dismiss God from our thinking, slip into the habit of neglecting our Bibles, failing to be alone with God in prayer, making decisions and living life without giving God and his will a single thought. That is living a life of pride and arrogance. And that's what the Edomites were doing. They were proud of many things, and Obadiah gives us a list here. They're proud of their security in verses 3 and 4. You uh, you who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars... From there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Uh, Edom felt very secure and boasted in their natural defenses. Since the land of Edom was uh, very rocky, very hilly, uh, the majority of their cities were built high up on the rocks where eagles nest, you know. And and any soldiers coming into the area were sitting ducks because they had to come through narrow canyons to approach these places. Uh, The chief city of Edom was known as Selah, meaning rock, And it could be what is known today as Petra, which also means rock. But you've seen pictures of Petra. Some of you have been there, nestled in the rocks. The only way to get into it is by a very winding canyon, about a mile long, never very wide at all. And because of this type of configuration, it was possible for just a dozen or so men to hold off an entire army because they had to come through single file. It was one of the most secure places in the world, and and after the Edomites passing and, and the other people moved in, it became a bank for the Babylon, Assyria. They stored their money there because it was so secure. But Edom took pride in their security. They said, what? Who will bring me down to earth? Sounds kind of like Lucifer in Isaiah 14, doesn't it? Same type attitude. And God answers Edom here in verse 4. They ask, who will bring me down? And God says, I will bring you down. They might have been humanly secure, but they were not divinely secure. And God was going to burst their bubble of pride. They were also proud of their wealth. Verse 5, if thieves come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined, would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave some gleanings? The, Edom had some fertile ground, but their, their main resource uh, Mode of income, as I mentioned last week, was some copper industry, but mostly from trade, going through, t- charging tolls on that. Anyone who wanted to trade in Egypt from Europe had to go through Edom, and likewise, the reverse. So they were able to control and tax all the commerce that came through. You know, what, what do people say about business today? Location, 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 right? Edom had a great location. The world traveled through them. And so he says in verse 6, oh, how Esau will be ransacked. His hidden treasures searched out. And so in verse 5 and 6 there, the message is that when Edom is attacked, he's going to send robbers, he's going to send grape gatherers against them, and they're going to take everything. You know, most of the time, any of you ever been robbed? It's never a good feeling. But they only take select stuff, right? Most of the stuff I have, they don't want. But God says, Edom, when you're attacked... It's not going to be like robbers. It's not going to be like grape gatherers where they leave some stuff. No, you're going to be, it's going to be wiped out completely. Everything's going to be taken. Nothing is going to be left. And so Obadiah is preaching judgment coming upon Edom is going to be far worse than what happens when robbers come and steal because they don't take everything. The judgment coming against Edom is going to be far more complete. So they thought they they, they were proud of their security. They were proud of their wealth. In verse 7, they're proud of their alliances. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border. All the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Edom was situated strategically. So all the surrounding nations had to maintain good relationships with the Edomites. Edomites. And these alliances that they had made with these various countries made Edom feel secure. They thought they were strong. They were proud of the strength that they had. And Obadiah gives three kinds of people described here. The first is the group of all the men allied with you. Those who have made covenants and treaties with them. Those who had agreed to defend them when others came against them. And then it's the men at peace with you. Uh, Who is that? Well... Same neighbors, probably, uh, and probably some other ones. No treaties officially done, but but they got along with one another. And then third, it's those who eat your bread. Who are the people that eat your bread? Well, your friends usually, right? That's who we like to break bread with, spend time with. And and so here in verse 7, it's intentionally talking about those who were allies, those who were neighbors, those who were friends. And guess what God says through Obadiah? All of them are going to turn on Edom. All of them. Edom wasn't only self-deceived, but her trusted allies would also deceive her. They would do what is despicable and break a covenant with a partner. And so Edom's allies, their neighbors, their friends would prove to be the worst of enemies. They'd fail to assist her in her hour of need. And this disloyalty would completely surprise and ambush the Edomites. Next, we see in verse 8, they're proud of their wisdom. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? When Job had his trials, one of his friends that came to comfort him was Eliphaz the Temanite. Teman was one of the major cities of Edom, was known for its wisdom. And as we talked about, uh, the people passing through Edom all the time with the wisdom from Egypt and Assyria and other places around the world, they uh, assimilated all this. Uh, in the Old Testament, the phrase men of the east often refers to men from Edom. Passages like 1 Kings 4 declare the great wisdom of the men of the east. Jeremiah in chapter 49 says of Edom, Is there no longer any wisdom in Teman? Has good counsel been lost to the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? Edomites were known for their wisdom, their understanding, and that was a source of pride for them. But what's the result? Verse 9. Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Without wisdom, without understanding, the mighty men, the warriors of Edom, are without wise counsel and direction. And because of this, they're dismayed and they will be destroyed. So, so Edom was proud because they were well defended. They were proud because they were, were wealthy and smart and had powerful friends and wisdom. How many people today, how many nations today that you know of are still filled with pride for some of these very same reasons? Ask yourself, am I filled with pride for some of these reasons? When a nation becomes too proud, it's brought down like Edom was. And so are individual people, right, if we let pride rule in our lives. C.S. Lewis, in his classic work, Mere Christianity, writes this about pride. There's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice, speaking of pride. And at the same time, "...I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others." You know, we are often blinded to the pride that we have in ourselves, right? It's easy to see in other people. It's easy to condemn in other people but it's hard to see in ourselves. And part of the reason might be because we use the word pride in a a couple of different ways. We talk about American pride, right? Or, Or we encourage school pride or tell people and our kids to take pride in their work. In most of those cases, we're simply telling people, encouraging them to strive for excellence, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But pride in its most simple, sinful manifestation is the feeling that we don't need God that we are self-sufficient. Do we ever live that way? If you're honest, we have to say yes, we do. And when we live that way, arrogantly, we look down on others. And we measure everything and everyone by the standards that we have. And proud people don't see their need for faith. Right? It doesn't the Bible teach? it's the humble who know they need God. Well, what did we learn in James? God is opposed to who? The proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so Obadiah has presented the charge against Edom. Edom, your pride is going to bring you down. God is going to oppose you. God is going to judge you. God is going to wipe you out. And then in verse 10 through 14, he gives us the evidence of their pride, the reason for the judgment against Edom. Because pride reveals itself in the way we act towards those around us. So verse 10 is the topic section of these five verses. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be cut off forever. The bad blood between Esau and Jacob was hard to erase. And each act of misconduct on the part of Edom only made the next one easier and more intense. We've seen its beginnings in the rivalry between Esau and Jacob as young men. We saw it on the national level at the time of Israel's exodus from Egypt and Edom not allowing them to pass through their country. Now we see it in the progression from pride to the specific sins of indifference and violence. And I want you to notice that we see here big sins are always built on little sins. Okay. Uh, The sin of unbrotherliness. Is that a word? sure, why not, has small beginnings, but it grows. A battle between two men will lead to a battle between two families, Hatfields and McCoys, right? It can lead to a battle between two communities and even two nations, as we see here. And so God through Obadiah says, Edom is guilty of violence against their brother, Jacob. And violence includes both moral wrong and physical brutality, okay? And this violence is especially despicable because it is against their brother. And so God says, great shame is going to cover Edom, and he will cut them off forever. And so in verses 11 through 14, we find an intensification of this offense, from mild beginnings to awful ends. And there are several pieces... Of evidence given here. Verse 11, on that day you stood aloof. Okay, what's Obadiah telling us here? What did Edom do when strangers came and attacked Judah, when foreigners entered Jerusalem's gates? What did Edom do? They certainly didn't help Israel. They stood around. They watched. You know, often doing nothing is as much a sin as doing something we shouldn't do, right? Sin of omission. Edom was indifferent to what was happening to Jerusalem. But God says, the end of verse 11, that they were as one of those who attacked Israel, even though they stood aloof. You know, don't we see this in the news oftentimes? Somebody's being attacked and people cross the street and pass on the other side of the road. Or they turn the other way and go... Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Similar, isn't it? The priest and the Levite, they saw the needy guy. They didn't want to get involved, so they stood aloof and passed on the other side. That's what Edom is doing to Israel here. They stood around. They watched. If somebody's in trouble and you ignore them, you pass by, you don't care, God says you're actively participating in that action. And this failure on the part of Edom stands first in the list of their sins progression. And doesn't it take us back to the first form of unbrotherly contact, uh, conduct in the Bible? The world's first brothers, Cain and Abel, right? They're at odds because of God's acceptance of Abel's offering and his displeasure at Cain's offering. And Cain gets angry at his brother and kills him. And God comes to him and demands, where's your brother Abel? Cain tries to stand aloof. What does he say? Am I my brother's keeper? That's what Edom's doing here, isn't it? Jerusalem's threatened by their enemies. Uh, then the people of Edom say, eh, this is no business of ours. We're not their keepers. Whatever happens, happens. If they fall, it's what serves them right anyway. Hey, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, weren't they right? We're not our brother's keepers, are we? Uh, yes, we are. We have a responsibility to others. We have a, a special responsibility to those within the family of God. God holds us accountable. Where you can help, you must help. Where you can encourage, you must encourage. Where you can defend, you must defend. It's when we stand aloof from one another that we begin sin's progression. And it's pride that makes us stand aloof. It goes from there to their gloating in verse 12 and 13. Do not gloat over your brother's day, verse 13. Uh, uh, Do not gloat over their calamity. You know, nobody likes a sore loser, right? But a gloating winner is just as bad, isn't it? And there is a sense in which Edom felt Israel was getting what was coming to them. And when Judah's being attacked by their enemies, the Edomites said, Oh, good. They deserve that. I'm glad this is happening. Do we ever act that way? You know, unfortunately... We do. We don't go out of our way to help one another. And we're not opposed to finding out the wicked details of some Christian's failings so that we can gloat over them and puff ourselves up. Well, look at them. I'm better. You know, we've all done that. And yet God says, don't be that person. They stand aloof, they gloat. Second part of verse 12. Do not rejoice over the uh, sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. So they not only remained aloof, they not only gloated, they even celebrated the defeat of their brother Israel. They talked about it with smiles and joyfulness. You know, we have to realize God, like a father, reserves the right to punish his own children, discipline, chasten his own children. But God doesn't need anyone else to come in and cheer him along, okay? Uh, What's the situation here, once again? God allows Babylon to defeat Israel. God is chastening his children. But Edom's there cheering their defeat. God doesn't need that. The fact that they were rejoicing in Israel's downfall is a reason God is using as his indictment against them that he's going to do away with them. And this kind of progression is easy to understand, because when there's hostility between brothers, nations, or churches, and one sees the other in misfortune, the natural thing, the unchristian thing, is to be happy about that. What does Proverbs tell us? Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. It's easy to rejoice when an enemy falls, isn't it? But God says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. That's your enemy let alone your brother. You know, as Christians who are being transformed, we're not to act that way. We're not to rejoice and gloat and stand aloof from one another. Neither are we to boast as the people of Edom did. End of verse 12. Yes, do not boast in their day of distress. Boast is literally, don't make your mouth great. I like that. Don't have a big mouth, in essence. Don't boast. You know, boasting and gloating grows from pride, doesn't it? Uh, They're closely related to rejoicing over another's misfortune. And why is it that we rejoice when we see an enemy suffering? It's because we consider ourselves better and they're getting what they deserve, right? If we saw ourselves on the same level as others, we'd mourn with them. We turn to God in humble thanksgiving that we've been spared that calamity, even though our sins are just as many as theirs. So up to this point, all the steps in Edom's growth of unbrotherliness have been attitudes or at least actions of a negative sort. They stood aloof in the day of Jerusalem's trouble. This led them to look down on their brothers, to rejoice in their misfortune, and ultimately to boast that they were stronger, they were wiser, they were superior to them. But this sin can't be confined to attitudes. Because what we think inevitably results in actions, and that's exactly what we see here with Edom. In verse 13, what do they do? God says, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. Do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Edom is no longer aloof. They have now entered the city and they're looting Israel on the day of their disaster. So, so apparently Babylon has attacked and left Judah in a defenseless position. The Edomites see this. They watch this. They rejoice and boast in it, and then they come and use that opportunity to steal whatever they could. Do we still see this kind of action today? Don't think of any time there's a natural disaster or a riot. What? The National Guard has to be brought in because looting is going on everywhere. That's the picture of Edom here. Judah's been attacked, and Edom takes advantage of that. And steals from them. But it doesn't end there. He goes on in verse 14 Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. Do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. Do you see the progression? Jews are trying to escape. Babylon's attacking. They're trying to escape, and the Edomites prevent them from doing so. They wanted them to suffer, so they're actually catching. The Jews who were escaping, they're rounding them up. They're delivering them back into the hands of the enemy. It's the ultimate growth of their sin. And it sounds terrible, and it is terrible. But aren't we sometimes guilty of the same thing? No, not in the literal sense, but in serving the cause of Satan through our treatment of one another. I mean, our duty is to not stand aloof, not make fun of, not look down on, not actively harm but to build up and restore one another as we fall into sin. Edom treated God's people terribly when distress and calamity came upon them. Yes, that distress, that calamity was God given. Yes. But because of Edom's response to all of this, God's judgment was going to come upon them as well. Uh, So first they did nothing. They just stood aloof. Then they gloated over Israel's misfortune. They rejoiced in their distress and their calamity. They boasted about it. And then they took advantage of their vulnerable state. They joined in the violence against God's people. Are we guilty of the same when we see others in distress or calamity? I mean, if so, God says it's sin and he will deal with it. But step by step, Obadiah has shown us sin's progression, sin's development, and with unavoidable logic, he's demonstrated the causes of the perpetual hatred with which Ezekiel was later to charge the country with. There's nothing left for Obadiah to do but speak of that coming day of the Lord that will be judgment for Edom, as well as deliverance for those the Edomites had mistreated. And you know, these these are obscure and yet powerful words that remind each of us of our responsibilities to one another. I mean, God expects us to get involved with one another, to help those who are hurting. As individuals, yeah, it's very tempting to shut our eyes to the needs around us. But that's also a very arrogant thing to do. We can become so absorbed in ourselves that we don't even see those who are around us. But when we do this, we're just like Edom. And hopefully you see how this ancient prophet's words still apply to us today. The person or nation who puts their confidence in themselves is stupid. And one of the problems with self-reliance, one of the problems with arrogance and pride, is that the arrogant person is not open to correction. After all, if I'm right, why should I listen to what anyone else has to say? And pride is invasive in each and every one of us. For example, if someone were to ask you the question, what makes you think you're a Christian? How would you respond? Would you immediately begin listing the good things you do? The Bible knowledge you have? How involved you are at church? What a wonderful Sunday school teacher you are? Or would you simply point to the cross of Christ and humbly confess that you're saved only and solely by God's grace? extended to you through the death and resurrection of his son. My guess, no, it's not my guess. I know, as each one of us looks at ourselves, we see evidence of pride in our own lives. I know I certainly do. And the message of Obadiah reminds us of the words of Solomon. Pride goes before destruction. Do we see that with Edom? Yes. A haughty spirit before stumbling. If we want to live faithfully, we have to remind ourselves daily that our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Not rely upon ourselves, but upon Him. We are His people. We're dependent on His mercy and His grace. And as we come to trust Him more, we'll be less focused on ourselves and more open to serve each other. Because we have that responsibility, that God-given responsibility, to care for those around us. You know, I don't think it's an accident at all that when we're told about the humility of Christ in Philippians 2 we're told he, what, humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. The humble person is the person who has a heart of compassion to other people. They understand they need mercy, so they're more willing to extend mercy to others as well. And yet, as we look at each of our own lives, if we're honest, we all have to admit, we're not as different from Edom as we'd like to believe we are. So let me ask you some probing questions. Have you ever seen a fellow human in need but willfully ignored what you could have done to help? Have you witnessed someone who was the target of abuse not only not defended them, but maybe even joined in, either verbally or mentally? Have you stood by and done nothing when you knew that to do nothing was sin? Have you stood silently while the name of God was dragged through the dirt? Have you ever been swept up in the competition of the moment and found yourself becoming just as savage as those around you? I mean, some of you enjoy sports. You ever been at a sporting event and that obnoxious guy is sitting next to you, just going off? Yeah, that's Wally. No, no, no. I was, I was going to say, I, you know, I've been known to do that a time or two. Have you ever smirked? Internally, externally, publicly or privately. When someone you dislike faced a difficult time. Even within the church. You felt they finally got what was coming to them. And instead of feeling sorrow, you rejoice in it. Or, or maybe even a friend who, who seems to have everything together, runs into a hard time. And instead of extending a helping hand, you think to yourself, well, now they know what life is like for the rest of it. Or maybe you felt a quiet satisfaction when another church, which sometimes you see as the competition, it's not competition, okay? But sometimes it's seen that way. You see a church experiencing some sort of conflict, and instead of praying for the unity of the church, you enjoy telling other people about the struggles of those people in the hopes that it makes your church look better. Don't do that. When we do these kinds of things, are we any different from Edom? No. You know, the message of Obadiah is not archaic. Is, it is not outdated. It's just as powerful and pertinent today as it ever has been. It's a call for us to remember to whom we belong. We're called to remember our job isn't to climb over other people. Our job is to work together and serve one another. You know, God hasn't placed us here so that we might play king of the mountain. No. We know who the king of the mountain is, don't we? His name is Jesus. As I mentioned last week, there's that critical time in the gospel when Israel and Edom meet again. This time, Israel is represented by a man and Edom by another. The Edomite is a man by the name of Herod. The Israelite was Jesus. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one that killed the baby boys there in Bethlehem. Jesus and the reports of Jesus' miracles fascinated Herod Antipas. And in Luke 23, we read the account of Jesus before this king. And Herod had everything he could have wanted. He had power. He had money. He had the freedom to indulge himself in any way he wanted. He felt secure in all that he had. He was a proud man. He was so proud that when the King of Kings, the Son of God, the ruler of the universe, stood before him, the only thing that concerned Herod was, what's in this for me? Herod hoped that Jesus would entertain him with a miracle. That's why he wanted to see him. Instead of worshiping the Son of God, Herod mocked him. He ridiculed him. Became a party to Jesus' murder. And yes, Jesus could have fought back, but he didn't. He didn't claim the throne at that time that was rightfully his because he wanted to make it possible for us to share his glory with him. And for that to happen, he had to go to the cross. He had to lay down his life on our behalf. Two kings representing two different ways of living. Herod, proud Edomite. Jesus, humble servant, Israelite. And each one of us has to follow the path or choose the path we're going to follow? Are we going to follow the way of Herod and the Edomites? Or the ways of Jesus himself? Will we trust in our strength, our wisdom, our, our wealth? Or are we going to trust in our Lord and Savior? Are we going to seek, seek to exalt ourselves or to exalt him? Do we want to proclaim how good and how great we are? Or proclaim his greatness and his grace? Will we use others for our own benefit, or are we going to reach out to them in love? You know, those are all basic questions, and they're raised by a prophet who we know nothing about, who wrote only twenty-one verses in the entire Bible. But we'd be wise to listen to him and to listen well. So, so briefly, what are some personal applications we can make for this? From this, um, pride deceives. Let me say it again. Pride deceives, and it will lead to more sin. We must humble ourselves. We must examine ourselves where pride is. Secondly, sin will follow a downward path, right? We saw how Edom progressed in its sins against Judah. At first, it's just complacency, indifference, but then it's the promotion of actual evil and finally participation in that evil. That should show us how dangerous complacency is. It never stops there. It always goes further. Third, God's going to keep his word. Obadiah said Edom's judgment would be complete and appropriate and last forever. They'd get what they deserve, and they did. You know, Edom no longer exists. God's word has been kept. God will also punish sin. Uh, I mean, here in verse 15, we're introduced to the day of the Lord, and we'll talk more about that next week. But God sees what nations are mistreating his people. He knows about that, and he will judge them accordingly. This shows us that God is in control. He is sovereign. And that's important for each of us to know, isn't it? Especially when we go through tough times. And then fifth, God protects His own. He takes care of His family. He is good. He loves us. And these last two ideas, that God is in control and that God is good, are important for each of us in living the Christian life. And these principles are repeated throughout the Bible. Uh, In the New Testament, in Matthew 6, in His Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns that we cannot serve two masters. He knows that the temptation for us is to try to find life in things because we don't believe God can or will take care of us. So we buy new things. We try new experiences to find meaning in life. Or we try to find our identity and meaning through our job or our friends or our kids. We do all these things because we don't believe that God is in control and that he is good. But Jesus there tells us that God... He's even in control of the birds of the field and the flowers of the field. He can certainly and he will certainly take care of us as well. He emphasizes that God is our Heavenly Father, which means he loves us. He wants what is best for us. He is good. So when we face difficulties, that doesn't mean God isn't there. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. No. The difficulties are for our own development. We saw that in James. We can get through them. We can grow through them. We can come out a better person on the end of them because God has a purpose in it. Even here in Obadiah, prophecy given. It's not just for information for our heads. It's not just so we can know what God has done or will do in the future. No, it's good for us. It's good for our hearts because it helps us see that God is in control and that he's going to preserve his people. Why does he preserve his people? because he promised Abraham that all the world would be blessed through him in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Father, we come before you thanking you for this warning from the book of Obadiah about the sin of pride. And we have to confess, Father, that we are a proud people. Father, we ask that we might humble ourselves before you, that we would not think more highly of ourselves than we ought that we would look around us and not just observe and mock but that we would get involved and be a help and encouragement part of the solution father help us to look out for one another within the family of god within this church Uh, may our relationships with one another grow to such a way that that we know when one is hurting and we come alongside to help them and father if one falls into sin we're not there to condemn and point fingers but to restore them into fellowship with you. So Father, we ask that you would help us in this area of pride in our own lives, that you would point it out to us, that we might come before you confessing it day by day, moment by moment. And Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.